Psalm 313, Randall has announced, and we'll use that at the proper time in the service this evening. It is a joyous opportunity that we each have had, and perhaps under the banner of Psalm 26.8, where there the passage for us reads, I was glad, as the statement made, to come into the house of the Lord. And tonight we've been given the opportunity to assemble as the people of God and to do so with the understanding of what a blessed privilege, in fact, that opportunity is. We're thankful for the capability of our voices and the ability to sing, but our mind no doubt rushes to those who continue to suffer sicknesses and illnesses of various varieties, and we certainly hope that things very, very soon are much, much better for each one of them, as Ted has mentioned it both this morning and also this evening. As you might have noted in the bulletin, the title of the lesson this evening taken from that text that Greg read just a moment ago, in fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, there the dead know not anything. And it, upon first reading, that's a bit of an interesting statement. In fact, it challenges us to give some thought to what is it that the inspired writer was affirming when in fact he said that the dead know not anything. These initial remarks or these introductory statements, I suppose, will come as no shock or surprise to any of us. Isn't it amazing how often the subject of death comes before us? As you and I are aware that on a daily basis, the funeral homes, the characteristics associated with them challenge us. And from time to time, we ourselves face those issues in life. And as we face them, or perhaps co-workers face them, and they ask us questions, or they in fact bring thoughts before us, it's easy to see, isn't it, that the subject of death, and what happens at death, and what is it that's beyond death, are things that many people spend much time considering. So much so that in fact there are interesting comments, articles, books, and commentaries throughout the centuries that have been written on the subject. At least for myself, I will recall that one of the courses that I was required to take at one point was a course in philosophy. And for those who, of you who may have known someone that's in a course like that, one of the topics they often discuss is death. But it's so tragic, the kind of, if I may use the verbiage, nonsense that is used in part of the textbook as these supposed scholars and brilliant ones who talk supposedly about death. In fact, I might point out so quickly that there is really only one source and only one book to which you and I may turn to learn anything trustworthy, anything reliable, and anything finally believable as it relates to the subject of death and what happens after it. It is with that thought in mind that as you give thought to some of these things that various scholars have written about death and about what happens after it, I use that very thought to close this book, that opening slide. The book of Ecclesiastes, it is a 12-chapter book in the Old Testament, and it has often been the subject of many pointed controversies, often been the subject of many rather directed controversial statements, some of which in fact have perhaps harmed or crushed the faith of many throughout the centuries. In fact, as we each have read it, maybe we have been bothered by some of the statements found in this Old Testament book. I hope tonight to at least look at this one little statement in chapter 9 and hopefully help each of us to remove some of the issues that we may have heard infidels say about that verse. Infidels that have used it to challenge the 
integrity of the Bible and in the mind of some maybe to use it to remove the authenticity of the Scriptures. In light of all of that, let's revisit Ecclesiastes 9. And as we do that, let's begin in the following way. I thought it would be fair to set the stage for what we shall see in the context of chapter 9. There are, isn't it true, several supposedly negative statements to be found in Ecclesiastes. And I've only selected a very brief number of them. We might well begin in verse 11 of chapter 2, where there the inspired writer said, in such graphic and vivid language, that when I consider the works of my labors, that all of it is vanity and vexation of spirit, it's all striving after the wind. You can immediately gain a sense and a feeling that this person's viewpoint toward life was somewhat negative. That all the things that his labors had accomplished, all the things that he himself by virtue of labor or work had been able to accomplish, and in the verses preceding, that was a somewhat extensive list. Be it matters of gardens, be it matters of education, be it matters of human wisdom, be it matters associated with servants and one's mastery over them, be it possessions, be it wealth. He said all of it was vanity and vexation of spirit. Today there are psychiatrists' offices and psychologists' offices filled with individuals who say, but I feel as though my life is worthless and I feel as though my life is empty and meaningless. Can you help me gain a feeling as to how to handle this? It would seem that the writer of Ecclesiastes was expressing feelings if taken in the right way, were at least directed similarly. Look two chapters later at Ecclesiastes 4, verse 2. Here we hear the writer say, I praised the dead that are dead more than the living that are yet alive. You and I too perhaps have been in a position of hearing someone say, but I wish I were dead. Now, you and I know that there are places and there are circumstances in which that kind of statement is a cause for great concern. When this person feels that his or her life is of sufficient worthlessness, of sufficient meaninglessness, that they can honestly make a statement that would be somewhat bothersome like that. Let's look two chapters later to Ecclesiastes 6 verse 11. Seeing there are many things that increase vanity... Amazingly, the question is asked, what is man the better? If life is filled with such problems, and if there are these matters that cause unhappiness, difficulties, and afflictions, why did God make me to begin with? Are we beginning to feel a tone in this book that some throughout the centuries have read and said, well, given that there's a book in the Bible like that, is there really any meaning in life? Is there anything ultimately substantial and important and significant to it? Perhaps as you give thought to all of them, perhaps it's time to be thankful that there are other statements in the book and not all of them are like this one. In fact, his Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon and the opening chapter affirms that he was the author. We remember that there were times in Solomon's life when things did not go particularly well. In fact, in 1 Kings 11, if you'd like to read that at some point, you have an inspired commentary on some problems and difficulties and tremendously great issues that plagued his life. 
But in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, the text says, To those who are young amongst the audience tonight, and maybe even those that are young in heart, but particularly to those that are our youth, listen to the words of the inspired writer, and it is so much brighter than some of those that we have just read. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Young person, you will never go wrong placing your trust in the hand of the Master. Walking hand in hand with Him despite the difficulties that others and peers may bring upon you and the insults or other kinds of comments they may make about you. As long as you in character and in integrity and in trustworthiness will follow the words of the Master, finally Solomon in his better senses asserted the greatness of that thought in that way. In that same chapter, in verses 13 and 14, he also would write this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, according to whether it be good or whether it be evil. He did then note that there is perhaps from the viewpoint of just pure flesh character that there are issues with life. In fact, I would invite us to make mention of just a few of them as we move to the next slide in a moment. It is amazing what kinds of things sometimes life can bring upon us. That person who works hard, perhaps accumulates much, but then he dies even before retirement lets him enjoy it. Does that seem fair? From the eyes of the world, it almost certainly doesn't. Or what about that individual who, though young and still in the energetic fervor and vividness of life, is plagued with a brain tumor and not too many years later has passed from this life? Does that seem fair? Maybe we've each been involved with individuals that we know from the neighborhood, folks that we know at work, individuals that we here at Pippin have prayed about for years and we nonetheless understand that their circumstance is difficult, that their circumstance is hard, that their life, though by no means is old, by the standard of, the, of this world at least, that nonetheless issues have developed and health problems are their lot. The writer of Ecclesiastes, I would submit, put to paper many things that no doubt have crossed all of our minds at one time or another. What is the central problem of life? I would submit that in trying to answer that from the perspective of the flesh, there is no answer. One searches for it in vain, and the writer of Ecclesiastes did. Of the making of many books, there is no end. And all of this is such that much study is a weariness of the flesh. Many of our students, as they approach final exams, would probably say amen to that but it's likely from a different vantage point than the inspired writer. You and I know that there are no answers to these things found outside this book. But thanks be unto God that we have the inspired statements of Scripture that provide answers to what life is all about and how we can in fact meander through it, be it long or short by the standard of human time, and find meaning within it, and find the characteristic of rightness with God, and a brightness to life that even in brevity cannot be snuffed out. What then, in light of these things, did the writer mean when he came to chapter 9, verse number 5? That text again reads, For the living know that they shall die, 
but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. It is in light of that I would ask this question. There have been quite a few throughout the ages that have used that text as a principal platform to teach there is the doctrine of materialism. The dead don't know anything. Once you die, it's all over, they would say. And once you've passed from the scenes of this flesh, no longer is there any kind of knowledge. No longer, they would say, is there any kind of consciousness. No longer would they say, is there any kind of anything other than at best a sleep-like state. Might we now return, is that what that passage teaches? Or do we have that teaching something that in fact helps us appreciate some things, but that what it teaches is not exactly what many infidels throughout the centuries have claimed? As we put some additional thoughts to that matter, let's do so in the following way. Let's be very clear as to one of the central thrusts and the central points of focus that is found throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. First of all, over and over again, as we mentioned earlier, the writer tries to help those of his day and those of our day see that you and I must understand how the material things are to be rightly viewed. And time and again, he helps us never forget that because he refers to things, quote, under the sun. Twenty-nine times in a book of only twelve chapters, that phrase is found. He's describing on so many occasions the things as they appear under the sun. It appears under the sun that life has no meaning. It appears that these possessions and all these other things that might be viewed are such that they are completely empty in terms of any appreciation. It appears under the sun that various and sundry things are so. But as you give thought to these things under the sun, I would invite you to notice that chapter 9 begins with that very set of thoughts. In the first four verses of Ecclesiastes 9, which come right before the text of the lesson tonight, the inspired writer said, For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are undone under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. The inspired writer said, isn't this an issue? There is one thing that happens to all. Sickness comes, to the health, sick, sickness comes to the saint as well as to the sinner. Crop failures come to the saint as well as to the sinner. It's the issues related to accidents come to the saint as well as to the sinner. Even death comes as well to the saint as it does to the sinner. From his viewpoint, the inspired writer said, but isn't this an evil thing? Why is there not some preferred advantage to being the saint? 
Why is there not some additional characteristic of superiority to those that are reckoned as the saint? You and I all know, though, that again, the same thing comes to all. We've each struggled to appreciate and perhaps have been asked by that Christian family who their 16-year-old was killed in the same car wreck as one who never attended church services. Sometimes you and I have struggled to find the best things to say to those weeping parents. Sometimes we've struggled to find the better things to offer in response. Sometimes, perhaps, all we can say is an understanding of things like are found in the book of Ecclesiastes. But might we notice the same thing happens to all. It is in light of that, can we not say? It was using that vantage point that he said, beginning in verse number 4. For to him that is joined to all the living there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. I suppose all of us at one time or another have reflected on the deeper significance of the latter part of that verse that a statement such as that one would be found in the Word of God. A living dog is better than a dead lion. We understand so very well that in life the lion has a degree of superiority. That while the two are living, the lion is known for its strength. It's known for its ferocity. It's known as in some sense the prince of the jungle. It's known in some sense as a rather fine and powerful creature. But yet just as soon as the lion is dead, all of the advantages that the lion had, all of the superiority that it might have known are vanished. And then the dog is recognized, of course, as being better than a dead lion. We are again seeing, and perhaps we can't emphasize it enough, that the inspired writer's vantage point again has to do with the way verse number 4 begins. To all the living there is hope. He's talking about life in the flesh. His vantage point, his viewpoint still is focusing upon that reality. He is thus helping us see that as long as that lion is alive, he has advantages in the sense that Things that the dog is unable to do. Things that are not characteristic of the dog. But of course you and I know again that once that lion is dead, these statements naturally follow. Any inferiority that the dog had now becomes a superiority over the death of the lion. As you and I face that kind of matter, doesn't it help us see that if one's focus is singularly and solely upon accomplishment in the flesh. Well, sure, once one dies, then that ends any opportunity. It ends any capability of fleshly accomplishment. If one singular focus is upon this life, what happens in this body, what happens in the flesh, and what happens in a carnal fashion, then sure enough, once death has taken place, that ends any further possibility of accomplishment in the flesh. It was that that was the basic meaning of this statement about a living dog being better than a dead lion. Isn't it a thankful thing that Solomon did come at some point to realize there's more, you see, than just what ends at the grave. There is so much more than that. That does bring us ever closer to the statement that is our main focus of the lesson tonight. Notice again in verses 5 and 6. 
For the living know not, for the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. And that challenges us in the sense of so many other verses, doesn't it? For you and I know throughout the Bible we have often come face to face with the reality that there is far more than just what ends at death. There is an entire life to be appreciated. There is an entire existence described in many ways. What then did Solomon mean when he said the dead know not anything? Are the dead then truly in a state of unconsciousness? Are the dead truly in a sleep-like state where really they do not know anything? If that's not true, what did Solomon mean? Let's try to study that a bit more thoroughly using the thoughts on that slide. First of all, in light of a host of other passages, this passage does not teach that there is this state of unconsciousness after death. It does not teach that the dead, in essence, sleep, just like you and I would see a corpse in a casket. That is not a proper feeling of and a proper viewpoint given so many other verses that teach many things different than that. Solomon, again, had a different viewpoint here. A viewpoint, as we've already learned, that was tied directly to the fleshly state. Solomon wasn't speaking here, you see, about the Spirit. He wasn't speaking, you see, about the nature of that ultimate reality of the human being as that immortal soul. Let's look more deeply at that thought. The context, as we have already studied it, does point directly to his discussion of under the, under the sun. His discussion again about the living dog and the dead lion, he was talking and helping us see about again the nature of life in the flesh and how it ends at the point of death. But he didn't say that all life ends at that point. In fact, let's put a few additional thoughts to that. You'll notice that I've used here in italics this thought, the, phrase, the verb perished. In fact, I would ask you to notice his usage of it exactly in verse number 6. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. So as he spoke about this matter of death, he said these particular things have perished. That is to say they have ended. And you might notice he said it's envy, it's love, and it's also hatred. But then he goes on to say, Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Under the sun again. You and I do understand well that there is coming. If the Lord delays His coming, that time when it is for you and me the issue of death. It is a time that again those in the world wrestle with because they have not the hope that you and I have. And they have not the understanding from the Word of God that you and I have. And they aren't prepared to face it in a way like the Apostle Paul did and so many others. It is for those reasons at the bottom. One could honestly say, of course, that at the time of death, that is the end of accomplishment in the flesh because we don't dwell in the flesh any longer. Not only might we say that, we might also say this. I use that statement from 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 16. Paul so aptly called to our attention what we understand already so well, that as we age, the ability to do things seems to wane. Paul said, our outward man decays day by day. 
again, we understand that well. The skin wrinkles, the muscles are weaker, the legs don't move quite as quick, the arms are not able to do what they once did, the mind may not be as sharp. Those things come about us and they come upon us. Wasn't it David who wrote in Psalm 90, verse number 10, as he made reference to the days of our strength being threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is our strength sorrow, and we fly away. David understood well that in this flesh it is a limited time, and there comes a time when indeed, in terms of fleshly knowledge, we understand that the dead indeed know nothing in terms of that kind of knowledge and that kind of accomplishment. But as you can easily see, so many other passages help us appreciate the more full consideration of a verse like this one. Even though it's true that body might be in fact fully decaying back to the dust of which it was made, that doesn't say anything about that spirit that is alive elsewhere. And that spirit that is understanding and that spirit that does have a degree of appreciation. Some of the verses that seem so readily come before us would be these. Consider Elijah in that scene of Matthew chapter 17. We understand well that Elijah had been dead for centuries. In fact, as his death is recorded for us in 2 Kings chapters 1 and 2, we notice that by the time that he appeared there on the Mount of Transfiguration, notice that he was able to converse with the Lord. Now, he was certainly alive in some way. It just was not in that ancient fleshly state. Consider another example, that of the teaching of the Lord in Luke the 16th chapter. In this life, the Lord spoke about a rich man who fared sumptuously every day. He was clothed in fine raiment. In fact, he seemingly had all the things that this life could desire that one possess. Also, there was a gentleman, there was one named Lazarus, and he was bereft of all the blessings and comforts this life had to offer. He was called a beggar. He was described as one who even would have been to the point of desiring his sores to be licked and to desire the crumbs that would have fallen from the rich man's table. But it goes on to say they both died. In that sense, we notice again that Solomon had said the same thing happens alike to all. And so they both died. But now we quickly observe that that rich man who had been so fanciful and blessed in this life found himself in torment. But on the other hand, that beggar who seemingly had so little in this life found himself in the comfort of Abraham's bosom. Notice the Lord didn't say that they were just in the sleep-like unconscious state. There was one that knew he was tormented and the other knew in appreciation of the comforts that were his. There is consciousness after this life. There is the reality of knowledge in consideration of what one is experiencing. There is a sense of awareness. But we also perhaps could appreciate that didn't Paul harmonize and think so lovingly about this as well? In Philippians, the opening chapter, he very clearly said that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Could it be possibly thought then that Paul had this appreciation that death is some kind of sleep-like state of unconsciousness? Well, of course not. He said it would be better for him to depart and be with Christ, but 
It was more needful, he said, to remain and continue the work of the gospel. In that closing chapter, at least by inspiration that Paul wrote and has been preserved for us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul on that occasion said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love His appearing. Paul knew well that though his body may in fact be buried, and though it might be true that his life in the flesh would cease, he also knew well that there was a continued existence for him. That place of interment to which we often come, as we attend a funeral service and proceed to the burial grounds or the cemetery, we may deposit the body back into the character of earth. But we also know that that person's existence has not ended. Their spirit is continuing to exist. It is continuing in a realm beyond this one. It's continuing in such a way that we understand that in terms of the physical knowledge of that body, sure enough, that has ended. The, death know, the dead know not anything. But in the spiritual sense, that person still knows a lot and is currently experiencing either a state of blessedness a state of comfort, or on the other hand, a state of torment. Those kinds of thoughts prompt us there to appreciate the two bottom statements on that slide. Again, doesn't it take us back to that rather sorrowful state of appreciation of so many in our world? If one is only living for the flesh, if one is only living for accomplishment in this flesh, isn't that a rather sorrowful state to have no hope beyond the grave, to have no preparation for it, to have no looking forward and anticipation of it? Paul even at one point said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most pitiable. It is a pitiful thing, isn't it, to look upon an individual whose life isn't based on this whose life isn't made ready and prepared for that life beyond. It is to be noted concerning all those things that we are prepared to close our lesson this evening with a summary statement <clears throat> Excuse me, that might well point us in a direction like this one. The final and ultimate meaning of life, and in fact Solomon pointed it to us in an interesting way, but the final meaning in life perhaps might be remembered in language like this, that indeed, that living dog is better than a dead lion. That helps us see if, that life is to be lived with a degree of preciousness and treasure because it is a blessing while we have it. But the ultimate meaning to be found in it is found in that next verse, the death know not anything. If we live only for this flesh, for the carnal nature of it, how sorely displeased we will be when we leave the flesh. For we've made no preparation for what's beyond. Jesus forevermore said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and, ru and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth, doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasury is, there will your heart be also." Many an individual has sojourned throughout life and made many accomplishments from the fleshly standpoint. But at the very instant that they died, 
What then did they have to show? Were they ready to meet God in judgment? Were they ready then to understand that now they're in this place and they made no preparation for it at all? That rich man was in exactly that very position, wasn't he? He'd made many preparations for the flesh, but no preparations for that which was not the flesh. May we not make that same mistake. But may we learn that interesting lesson from Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the old preacher of the ancient era. And in that way, may we live wisely. And in the language of Titus 2, verse 12, soberly, righteously, and godly ever looking for and desiring the great appearance of the Savior Himself, in which we would look forward to Him on that day of judgment, saying, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Matthew 25, 21. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Tonight, as you give thought to your life, as well as I do the same for mine, where do we stand before the judgment character of the bar of God? Are we placing all of our emphasis on this life? Are we using this life in its proper character to always make ready for that life that is the life hereafter? If tonight you're not a Christian at this moment in time, understand that there is a time of preparation. But when the time of your death comes or when the time that Jesus returns comes, there's no longer any opportunity to make ready. At that time, the door will have been shut. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1. And once that door is shut, there's no longer allowed entrance into the greatness of the time of preparation. Tonight, if you're apart from the fold of God, if you aren't faithful to His calling, faithful to His mission, come in the door while you have the chance. Come into the door while the calling is available to you. We're all called by the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. And if tonight your heart is ready to receive that calling... If we could assist you in becoming a Christian, you need to believe the Lord, believe His Word, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. If you have been a faithful Christian at one time but no longer are, come back to your first love this very night. Let us pray with you and for you, and let us approach God on your behalf for forgiveness of your sins, that you can be reinstated like that prodigal son to the side of his father and in a faithful status and a faithful standing before Him. If tonight we could be of help to you in either of those ways, we would urge you at once to realize the blessing of life. But it is a time of preparation, for indeed the dead know not anything. And if we could help you, would you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?